It's midnight, the podcasting hour. executioner watches the construction of a gallows in the prison yard. As high above, a prisoner named Mario laughs wildly in his cell. He laughs because tomorrow he will hang. Why should this dreadful fate stir such a reaction from Mario? The reason is made known when the sun goes down and Mario's lover appears as if the dust motes in the moonlight took on the form of a beautiful woman. Mario rushes into the waiting arms of his lady Viola as she draws back her lips to reveal two sharp fangs and plunges them into his neck. Yes, Viola is a vampire, and she comes to Mario this night for the last time before his execution. But Mario has no fear of the hangman, for once he is killed, he will rise from the grave, an immortal vampire like his beloved. Locked in his cell, awaiting death, Mario has ample time to remember how his life came to this point. He had broken into the tomb of old Jacopo and was attempting to steal a valuable necklace when Viola rose from one of the other coffins. At first she terrified Mario, but he succumbed to her will and returned to the tomb night after night to let her feed on him. One fateful night, however, the sexton caught Mario sneaking into the tomb. The sexton cried out for the night watch. Panicking, Mario swung his crowbar at the man, killing him. The guards captured Mario and threw him in the cell, where he waits to be hanged. As dawn approaches, Viola tells Mario that after his execution, he will rise as one of the undead. He will be immune to age and most injuries, and only vulnerable to things like fire, sunlight, a stake through the heart, beheading, and silver. Then Viola vanishes into the darkness just before the sun comes up. Not long after, the guard comes to Mario's cell and leads him out to the yard. But the guard marches him past the gallows, for Mario is not going to hang after all. He asks if he's been pardoned. The guard says no. Because Mario's mother was of noble ancestry, the king decides to spare him the long-suffering of the hangman's noose. Instead, the guard walks Mario up to the executioner with his big, shiny axe. Didn't Viola say vampires were vulnerable to beheading? Tough break, Mario. Tomorrow I Hang is written by E. Nelson Bridwell and illustrated by Jim Aparo. It originally appeared in House of Mystery, issue 209, published on Halloween 1972. 
Hey there, folks, it's PJ Frightful here with a brand new spine-chilling episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. Get ready for two blood-soaked vampire stories brought to you by Ryan Daly and a pair of guests making their midnight debut. The stories don't bite. We'll find out if the guests do after this break. Ah, after a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute, that's not a radio, it's... Plastic Man! Plastic Man! Plastic Man! That's right, it's the Plastic Cast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together, we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Whew. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law here on the Plastic Cast, here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Plastic Man! Welcome back, listeners. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am pleased to welcome a new guest to Midnight the Podcasting Hour, a fellow member of the Fire and Water Network. He is the host of Plasticast and the Mirror Factory podcast on FW Presents. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Max Romero. How are you doing, Max? Hello, Ryan. <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? Uh, is that Bella Lugosi I'm, I'm here listening to? <laughs> sure, why not? Let's, let's say it's Bella Lugosi. <laughs> Welcome to the show. And you know, every time I have a new guest, uh, I have to ask the question, what is your experience with the horror genre in fiction, in comics, movies, whatever? Uh, with a name like Romero, I'm almost hesitant to ask this time. <laughs> if only. I wish I had some sort of relation to George Romero. Uh, no, actually, it's kind of hard to pin down. Um, my mom actually probably introduced me to horror more than anyone else. And, you know, I've told this story before, but my aunt, my great aunt, owned a bookstore in my hometown. And when I was a kid, my parents would drop me off there when they were running errands. And so she would sit me down at a card table with a bunch of comics. And most of those were, you know, late Silver Age, early Bronze Age. So I read a lot of these horror comics. You know, a lot of, I read a lot of House of Mystery, House of Secrets, a lot of the Marvel stuff, you know, stuff like um, Tomb of Dracula and... Mm -hmm. The Frankenstein Man Thing, Werewolf by Night, yeah. uh, Morbius, you know, all that stuff. And um, at the same time, I was also – I was probably introduced to the Universal Monsters <laughs> through Abbott and Costello movies <laughs> mm -hmm. first. And uh, and from there, you know, just tracked all that down. And so, yeah, I've been, I've been a horror fan for a very long time. And, you know, and that's graduated into other types of horror and, you know, gore and splatter and – Pretty much everything. I think the only thing I don't really like is the the torture kind of horror sure, film. Yeah. But everything else, I'm 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 game for. Cool. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had like a preferred preferred subgenre of horror, preferred like style or tone. But yeah, it's 
everything yeah. except for the torture porn. I I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and I like I like a lot of the modern horror stuff. Um, my my real sweet spot is werewolves. I I, 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 I love a good werewolf movie. All right, well, that's not quite the subject of this of this episode, but we're going to be... No, but I, I love them all. I love yeah, them all. There you go. Uh, no, I wasn't setting that up, but um, let us get to the subject for this show. Um, Max is here to help me review the short story called The Castaways. This story was published in the spring of 1978 in Secrets of Haunted House Special, which was another name for DC Special Series Issue 12. This eight-page story is written by Bob Toomey with art by Vicente Alcazar, letters by Todd Klein, and colors by Adrian Roy. A couple of newlyweds named Joshua and Elaine are riding in a horse-drawn carriage in the country when a fierce thunderstorm overtakes their carriage. A crack of lightning spooks the horses. The carriage topples over, killing the driver and sending the panicked horses dashing into the rain. Joshua pulls his unconscious bride from the wreckage. Desperately, he calls out to the only light he can see, a lamp carried by a man walking down the road. The man tells Joshua that his master ordered him to patrol the road for anyone lost in the storm. He then leads Joshua and the still-unconscious Elaine on a long journey to a brightly lit mansion in the middle of nowhere. As Joshua approaches the house, his weariness overwhelms him and he passes out. The smell of perfume rouses Joshua some time later. He wakes in a bedroom with an aristocratic woman watching over him. She calls herself Baroness Warzik and says that political upheaval in her homeland has forced her and her husband to become castaways in this land. Joshua asks about his wife. The Baroness says she's recovering in another room. The Baroness then bids Joshua to join her at a lavish gathering the Baron is hosting downstairs while Elaine rests. Dressed in a finely tailored tuxedo provided by the Baroness, Joshua seems intoxicated by the woman's perfume and the atmosphere of the party. The Baron introduces himself, and then just as quickly excuses himself to attend to some business upstairs. The Baroness asks Joshua to dance. He accepts, but he worries about Elaine waking up in this strange place without him. When the Baroness goes to get Joshua a drink, he heads back upstairs to check on his wife. Only he doesn't know which room she's in. Opening the first door he comes to, he is horrified to see the body of a man strung up by his feet, his blood draining down into a bucket on the floor. Panicking, Joshua runs down the hall, opening every door, looking for his beloved. At last he finds her, in bed, with the Baron. Joshua throws himself at the man, who sneers, revealing two long, pointed teeth. The Baron easily defends himself, knocking Joshua back. The younger man declares that he and his wife are leaving the house at once. The Baron tells Joshua he is free to leave whenever he wishes. As for Elaine, the choice to leave is equally hers. Joshua pleads with his bride, but Elaine, speaking like she's lost in a dream, tells him she has no wish to leave. The Baroness appears at Joshua's side, beckoning him to dance with her again. Smelling her perfume once more, Joshua no longer feels the same urgency to leave the house, nor the same concern for his wife or the dead man down the hall. 
the Baroness tells him they are castaways, and like castaways, they have always done what is necessary to survive. Then she wraps her silken arms around him and plunges her two sharp fangs into his neck. For a moment, Joshua feels only ecstasy, and then nothing at all. And that was the story, The Castaways. So, Max, what did you think of this one? I loved it. <laughs> I, I really, really dug this story. Um, I wasn't really expecting to like it as much as I did, mm-hmm. but it really just kind of ticked all my boxes. It was, you know, and you know, I, I know I mentioned earlier that that werewolf movies are kind of my favorite, but I also love a good vampire movie. Yeah, you know, and I like. I think the last vampire movie I saw that I really, really enjoyed was Let the Right One In. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, but of course I, I love Near Dark. Uh, I, I love all the Blackula movies, <laughs> all, all that. Um, Night Flyer, which is a crazy movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you haven't. You I should. have, yeah, a long time ago. Oh. But I, yeah, I love that one. Oh my God, yeah. I saw that like at three in the morning and that's not a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> but, um, but this is like the classic gothic vampire story mm-hmm. popularized by Bela Lugosi and 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 the um what was it 1938 I don't I'm, I'm, I'm probably getting that date wrong no actually uh, it's pretty close I think oh okay um that that Dracula movie mm-hmm. and because you know the the Baron is dressed you know very much in that, that uh tuxedo kind of style uh it's the the Baroness and there's they're essentially in this giant mansion which doubles as a castle uh, there's this weird old party going on, which is my biggest question <laughs> about the story. Um, and it's not a new story. You can kind of see everything that's going to happen. There are plenty of hints that are going on. And especially if you're familiar with the genre, which, you know, most people are, are familiar with the basics, you can you can tell where this is going. But at the same time, that kind of cranks up the dread, or it did for me at least, because you can kind of see it, and you but you don't really want to look because you know what's coming. And um, what I liked about it, too, was that a lot of the, the story, the Baron doesn't show up until, I guess, the last third of the story. It kind of leaves it up in the air about whether or not it's the Baron or if there's even if there even is a Baron mm. or the Baroness, who's the who's the vampire. And it turns out to be both of them, uh, which is kind of a cool concept. I don't know if I've ever really seen that done like that somewhere else. And so I, I as a total story, I it just really worked for me. Yeah. Quick note, I just looked it up. Uh, 1931 was the first Dracula movie with Bela Lugosi in it. Oh, so um, close. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, getting back to what you were saying, like, I mean, I, like you, I, I think I like werewolves a little bit more than vampires, but saying that, I will concede that pound for pound, there are more great vampire stories and movies than there are great yeah. werewolf stories. Um, I, Werewolf by Night is one of my you know personal favorite comic series ever told, but mm-hmm. Tomb of Dracula is just better. <laughs> and I kind of like objectively, I'll, I'll grant that. Um, right. Even, um, but yeah. So getting into this one, yeah, this is this is my type of vampire story. I I really like just like you were saying, and I remember um, when I did uh, an episode of FW Team Up with Siskoid, we covered Zorro versus Dracula. And I was mentioning that there are so many different types of vampire stories. There are so many different types of vampire movies and interpretations. For me, it's always kind of gone back to the sort of Dracula mold where I like the vampire as 
an aristocratic, a kind of old world authority, um, that, that sense of regality and cursed nobility uh, that Count Dracula has. And the Baron and the Baroness definitely seem to have that. Um, you know, they're not like monstrous Nosferatu, like they're not bottom feeders, they're not punk kids like the Lost mm-hmm. Boys, and I'm not disparaging <laughs> that movie, I love the Lost Boys. Yeah. Um, but these are like the type of vampires that I like, you know, like the they sort of hunt among the upper class, and they're decidedly evil, they're the predatory creatures, you know, they're not, you right. know, they're not tortured lovers or anything like that. Oh no no no! I mean, one of the things that's that's probably the most horrifying scene in the in the story is the man who's being basically he's being dressed like an animal. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's hung up by his by his feet and his I assume his throat is slit. This this story has great art, in and it's it's all shadows and mm-hmm. and you know chiaroscuro and and you know light in corners, but everything else is in in, in the dark and you know it just looks really great. So you get a sense of what's happening in that panel, but, you know, it's not graphic, but it's enough to be horrifying. It's one of those things where it shows you enough to give you a sense of what's happening, but your Mm. mind has to kind of make it up, and that often makes it more horrifying. Right, Um, right. Yeah, yeah, the the art in this um, by Vicente Alcazar, I mentioned, um, who was a Spanish artist. He worked at DC, Marvel, Archie, Red Circle. Um, almost always worked on Western war and horror, like genre type of books. Um, he did have a short run on Jonah Hex. And as a little note, I discovered he was actually discovered and recommended by Gray Morrow, um, oh, which is interesting because I can kind of see some similarities in sort of like in their style in terms of it's not like a photo reference, but like sort of like the way, mm-hmm. like the faces and everything. I can see a little bit of similarity. Yeah. I, and, you know, he's, his work is. His style is really well suited to this type of story. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like you said, it's very, very dark, very heavy shadows, coupled with the fact that this is an old, beat-up copy that we're, we're looking at, the page, <laughs> and the printing is not great. So I'll be honest, like, there are some panels where it, it is almost hard to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the panel where they're approaching the house, uh, I'm, I'm – Assuming that it's it's uh, Joshua is just passing out because one of the panels is just right. really hard to make out what's happening. Uh, you kind of just have to put it together from context. But at other times, that darkness really helps accentuate the mood and and kind of like you were saying, kind of like plays into the aspects of the story that really make it work. And, I, and especially, I think you know, going back to what you were saying about how this isn't. Um these aren't savage vampires necessarily. And I think part of the reason that this is like you, this is my favorite kind of vampire. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is, this is what, you know, this is what I look for in a vampire story because I think what's so effective about vampires that are done well as a concept. And, and once it's put forward in movies or comics or, or books, whatever, is that it could be anyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that dread of the serial killer. Yeah. You know, on the outside, it's it's someone who otherwise seems normal and and in this in this case especially seductive. But you know, once you get on the inside, it's the casket and it's puddles of blood everywhere. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but one thing about this about this story is that it's all about drawing them in. Yeah. It's all about seduction. It's all about power and 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 like this casual kind of power. And yeah, and that's what makes it so creepy. Mm. Is that you you, you kind of get the sense that. These people have no chance. Yeah, <laughs> from, from the very from the very start, they're they're already flies in the web. Yeah, 
Yeah, I I rarely say this about like these short horror stories, but this is one that I actually wish it would have been a little bit longer. Um because I would have liked to see I would have liked to gotten maybe a scene with the Baroness and the Baron together. Not the two of them like behind the scenes like scene because I like that we have just one POV character that's Joshua and we really don't see the inner workings of this thing. We were really limited to that. I like that, but I would have liked to see him watching the Baron and the Baroness talking to each other and how they act and how they, um, if, if that's any different, because we don't really see that. Right. Um, and maybe a little bit more about the house and the trip up there. But um, okay. Especially since they, it, it kind of comes across in the story a little bit, but it's very subtle, is that the, the Baron and the Baroness, they're very casual about it. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, this is not the first time they've done this. Right. And that is scary in itself, <laughs> you know, just this casual way that, you know, for one thing, they're, they seem to be vampire swingers, which, you know, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but they also, you know, like you said, they're predators, they're yeah. hunters. This is what they do. Right. And, and they're, they're used to, you know, they're like, they're like a pair of wolves or, or you know, a pair of, you know, they're used to hunting together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have this pack they... They separate this couple. They bring this couple in. And, yeah, that's something that I kind of wanted to, like, because the whole thing is very sort of, like, dreamlike. Like, this couple is caught up in a storm, and they're led to this, like, this place in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then there's a party going on. Well, was the party going on during the middle of the storm? Like, are these people really there, or is this all just part of the seduction and the lure that right. they're using? Um, and that's another one of the things that I like about these types of vampire stories. And again, playing into the, the sense of aristocracy and regality of them is the, the sort of power of presence and command mm-hmm. that they have that even before you're bitten, you're kind of in their thrall. Right. Um, and it's from the moment Joshua wakes up, you're like you said it. He, they, he has no chance. The, the her her power over him with the perfume and just this intoxication, she could convince him to do anything. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's gonna forget about his wife. He's gonna forget about the dead body, and he's just gonna go back with her. Right. And 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 he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's a good way to put it. You know, because it's not only this that it's this intoxication and and there's a there's a part. Uh, I think it might be on the last page where it's talking about how it's it's a dreamlike situation like you said and and when he goes looking for his wife he goes door after door after door you know like almost like this hallway has no end mm-hmm. and they they reference more than once the the writer references the subtle perfume filling the room yeah so almost from the almost from the time that their carriage crashes it's it's this dreamlike state that they're stuck in and nothing makes sense mm-hmm yeah, it's kind of like they're once the carriage crashes, they're they're on borrowed time. But really, that that was what <laughs> that was what sealed their fate. And right. It's yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I I enjoy this. I only had one minor nitpick criticism about this. Other than I thought it could have been a little bit longer, but that's just me being selfish. Um, but there's one. Ah, uh, where's? Oh yeah, it's on it's on page three. It's when he wakes up and the Baroness is inviting him downstairs. Um, in the caption, her hand burned like cold fire on Joshua's mm. arm. I hate that, that, that <laughs> caption. I hate that 
cold fire. I was like, it's like, what? <laughs> what? that doesn't mean anything. That's kind of like, uh, like, I've heard that. I've read that in so much, like, kind of like cliche, bad high school writing and everything like that. Right. It's like, that's not describing anything. Nothing, cold fire, that doesn't exist. It's like, right. Even I gotta, I have to give him points, though, for using punctilious in a. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was. That, that reminded me of the days, you know, when I was reading comic books, and I'd, I'd have to go to the dictionary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did. I actually, the first time I read this, I had to look that up. I was like, is that? <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I, it, I think it means what I think it means. And yeah. But overall, you know, I think it's it's a great, um, it's a very good take on the classic Dracula story. Yeah, it's my time. And so I, that, well, that was going to lead to sort of my next question, kind of opening up the, the subject. Is this story a good vampire story? I think we both agree, yes. Yeah, I I think it's an excellent vampire story. Actually, it, it's uh, like I like I said at the before. It, I was surprised how much I like this mm-hmm. because you know I've read a lot of these kinds of you know uh, they're not really anthologies, but these you know House of Secrets, you mm-hmm. know these horror comics, and you know you're they're 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 hit or miss. You mm-hmm. know they're they're not all great, but this one I thought was really really good. I, the vampire is often a metaphor for different things, and you can use it as a metaphor for counterculture the way it was in The Lost Boys. Um, I don't really like when vampires are sort of just substitutes for zombies, when they're kind of like right. mindless like creatures, like in the movie I Am Legend, or even at the end of um, From Dusk Till Dawn, um, which I, I like a whole lot about that movie, but at the end I was like, there's... Like that—that's not the kind of vampire representation that I want. This is right. more that I, I want. Yeah, that was my problem with the strain, also. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. That's I understand. I understand completely because that kind of robs them of what makes them unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I like the way that vampires are portrayed. They are high society serial killers, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and definitely like sort of predatory, aristocratic, definitely old world. Um, something exotic about them. Um, mm-hmm. But they have that that power, that charisma. That once they lock their eyes on you, it's it, you're dead before they bite you. Right. <laughs> that, that type of thing. You're, the the doom that comes with that. Um, yeah, and I, and also that that uh, I keep going back to this idea of seduction, but also it kind of part of I think what makes vampires so interesting as as a as an archetype, I guess, mm-hmm. is that they, it kind of makes you ask the question. Would it really be so bad to be a vampire? <laughs> you know, because you know they they make it look pretty good. Yeah. You know, and, and they make you ask: Are you are you basically willing to essentially lose your soul to feed and to kill people if it means you could live forever? Right. If you could be young forever and more powerful than you've ever been in life. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they they force you unless they're just straight out killing you. But mm-hmm. but they but you know they the vampire forces you to ask. You know how far would you go? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you, that's that's a great point that I do like, and I like the way that question. I mean, it's asked a little bit differently, and the stakes are a little bit different depending on what type of media or what type of genre or, uh, sure. or what type of vampire you're you're getting. Because certainly, sometimes it's you know for eternal youth, for eternal mm-hmm. beauty. Um, would you be willing to just sell your soul and have to live as like an evil killer, essentially, would you have to right. like do that in order? Um, sometimes it's you know for those same things, the, the what the cost is sort of sacrificing not just your your humanity, but uh, an essence of your conscience. If you're like part of a a collective, like where 
you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're the master, whoever it is, kind of controls you. That might be in, in, like an aspect of the vampire existence in some stories. Great. Um, and then uh, I, I think like in Twilight, I don't know if there actually is a cost. I think it's just like, <laughs> hey, you, we can be hot and in love forever and occasionally mm-hmm. fight werewolves. And I, I think yeah. that's only, I think that's the only problem with being a vampire we, in that world. We, we sparkle in the sun. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah it's not, <laughs> it doesn't look too bad, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of glamorous, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that's like, you know, I, I had mentioned Let the Right One In bef- before. Mm-hmm. And part of what I like about that movie also is this idea that the main character, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, is her manservant, her Renfield, mm-hmm. is basically to gain, is basically getting too old to do his job. Mm. So she's she's drawing in this young boy mm-hmm. to, to basically take over. And that's the classic Dracula kind of vampire, you know, yeah. of bringing in this this entourage and these helpers yeah. to to help them get through their unlife i guess yeah 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 um speak for you because you have the uh the sort of literary references or literary uh uh segments podcast with the mirror factory um i, I was thinking about one of my favorite vampire pieces of literature uh is the stephen king novel salem's lot oh that's on my list yeah and I, yeah and that's that's that was the first book i ever read that scared me um like i <laughs> yeah. I'd read like other horde novels or whatever i've even read some of his and they didn't scare me they i didn't feel like i was having this i i could sort of intellectually say i was like oh yeah that part is supposed to be scary or that would be like an interesting jump scare or something like that like in but reading Salem's Lot was the first time where there were a couple of sequences where I was like, ooh, I'm feeling something here. Like, he's getting yeah. under my skin a little bit. Um, and the way the vampires in in that town, I, I kind of getting into that idea of the collective, is once they're turned, they have a sort of kind of instinctual memory of their former life. They're kind of their their home, who their family was and everything, but that kind of goes away over time. But it's also like the master vampire in that town is able to sort of project himself through the, the underling vampires and, and they can frequently like kind of like speak and, and threaten other people like through like, you know, his consciousness. So again, having that sort of Borg or, you know, like mm-hmm. alien, like kind of like B collective uh, voice type of thing. So I just thought, like, I, I liked the way the vampires were portrayed in that one too, uh, as yeah. a as a distinct, very sort of other uh, interpretation to the kind of version that we're seeing in this. Right, you know, and that's and that's a good point, and that's you know because that's horrifying as well mm-hmm. the the loss of self, the loss right. of individuality, and you see a little bit of that in the in the classic Dracula with his with the the women that are enthralled to yeah. him, yeah, the bride, and yeah. you know, yeah, in Salem's Lot, Stephen King really kind of brought that concept of this hive mind almost mm. forward which added another layer of of of, uh, of hor- i keep keep saying horror but you know it's horrifying yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know this this idea that you kind of remember who you are but it stops being important right right and the la- the last or the loss of those memories the loss of those attachments 
makes you susceptible to betraying the people that you love, the, the things you love, which right. is why so many of the, the characters who are turned into a vampire, their first instinct is to go home and feed on their family, mm-hmm. their spouses, their children, their parents, the, you know, the people that they love. It's, it's that type of thing, which, again, gets me to you know, the, 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 the ultimate sense of betrayal of the, the human contract is kind of the for me like the most scary and the most upsetting thing it's why i really hate zombie fiction and zombie movies Mm -hmm. um because they they upset me they they bother me uh, on a mental level more than any other horror genre because that idea that your body will betray you if you're infected and then you just kind of betray civilization, humanity, everything that we've kind of put up as important and all of that breaks down. Um, that, that kind of breakdown, that sense of betrayal, that just, uh, that, that's what bothers me yeah. more than anything else. So oh, that's, yeah. yeah, that's why I don't watch The Walking Dead or, or zombie movies really that much. <laughs> Unless they're really well, good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and that's that's what's interesting to me about, about vampires also is that it's, for the most part, a lot of times, especially if they're the master or that sort of thing, you know, they, they can walk around and they have conversations and they have uh emotions and everything else you know they're perfectly human in every way except that they're not mm-hmm. and when they reveal themselves they're as much a monster as as a zombie or as a as a werewolf or you know anything else because they they like you said they have no conscience right right you know and 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 but they know what they're doing mm-hmm. and that's that's horrifying yeah. Getting back to the story, like I wonder if you know, like if they had extended this storyline, you know, one more page, what would have happened to Joshua and Elaine? Like, what type of if if they weren't just drained and killed outright, if they were actually allowed to become vampires, what type of vampires would they be? Would they be just partners of the Baron and the Baroness, or would they be underlings? Would they be sort of subservient, you know, pet creatures, or you know, right. yeah, and and I. I Personally, I kind of think that they were being brought in as vampire lover thralls, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe that's just what I maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm projecting a little bit. But, we have but, to. All, all we can do is speculate. So, <laughs> but, that's, but that that's that's kind of the sense I got. But you know that that brings up the party too. Who were the, were they? First of all, were they was there even a party, or was that just part of the hypnotizing effect that they were having? Right, right. Or, and if they were p- people there, were they vampires also? Were they, were they, you know, sheep being brought in to be cold, or you know, what was going on? <laughs> I I assume that they were possible targets. I mean, I don't think you could have that many. I, <laughs> that's one of the things that where I have to bring like other aspects were. I find it difficult to suspend my disbelief that much when I think I was like, wait a minute, if there was that many vampires, you would have a problem <laughs> with the, the predator to prey aspect ratio in, right. in a given like location. Then I start thinking like a zoologist or something like that. Right. Well, and you know, the Baroness, I think, or was it the Baron did say that they're cast, that they have to go, that they yeah. basically are always on the move. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I don't that, that, Yeah. It would have been, you know, maybe this is too much, but I I wouldn't have minded maybe some follow up stories with mm. these couple just because I have questions. Right, right, right. <laughs> but but I have but they're they're good questions. They're questions because I want to know more about these characters. Yeah, cool. And I think that's uh, 
I think that's a good thing to end with. Just saying that this was a good story made me want to read more of this story, made me want to be a little bit longer, made us want to know a little bit more about these characters, their past and their future. So I think that's the sign of a really good story. If it can have, if it can pose that kind of interest in the reader for more. Yeah, I agree. Very cool, very cool. Well, Max, thank you very, very much for uh, indulging me and and sharing this story with me. Uh, Thank you for joining me on Midnight, the podcasting hour. Uh, I've already mentioned it, but where else can our listeners find you online or in the podcastosphere if they want to hear more from you? Uh, Well, the best place to find me is right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I have a couple of shows. One is Plastic Cast, which is all about Plastic Man. And the other one is the Mirror Factory, which is uh, I guests come on the show and they read a favorite pa- they read a favorite passage from uh, from fiction, either a novel or a short story, and uh, and we talk about it. So and I'm and you know I'm really excited about both of those shows. Very 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 cool. Yeah, and and the Mirror Factory right now is part of FW Presents. So if you want to hear right. that, listeners, check out the FW Presents feed or just subscribe to the All in One feed of Fire and Water Network. All right, Max, one more time, thank you very much for joining me. Listeners, we're going to take a short promo break, but I will be back after that with another story. Don't go away. Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. The 290th issue of House of Mystery marked a turning point for the series. For the first time in roughly 13 years, the book was not solely an anthology of self-contained short stories. The first of three stories in House of Mystery 290 kicked off the ongoing saga of I, Vampire, a serialized horror adventure that would run through most of the rest of the series until its cancellation. There hadn't been serialized adventures in House of Mystery since Joe Orlando booted Martian Manhunter and Dial H for Hero from the book 120 issues earlier. The first installment of the I, Vampire Saga is written by J.M. DeMatteis with art by Tom Sutton, letters by John Costanza, and colors by Adrian Roy. House of Mystery 290 is cover dated March 1981, though Mike's Amazing World of Comics lists December 23, 1980 as the on-sale date. Len Wein edited the book and the legendary Joe Kubert drew the cover, which depicts a stately vampire in the Dracula mold holding an unconscious woman while bats soar in the red skies overhead. Hmm, red skies. Is this a crisis tie-in? An elderly man named Dmitri Mishkin and a beautiful young woman named Deborah Dancer stand on the roof of a building, spying on the Hotel Legrand across the street, because they've been told that Mary, Queen of Blood, is staying at the hotel. While they fight over the binoculars, a wolf climbs up on the roof and approaches them. 
Dimitri and Deborah prepare to defend themselves when the wolf suddenly changes form into the well-dressed aristocratic Andrew Bennett. Deborah is clearly enamored of Andrew, but Dimitri not so much. He's suspicious of Andrew, who is, after all, a vampire. 400 years earlier, Andrew Bennett was a lord in Queen Elizabeth's court. Though he had distinguished himself as a capable fighter in the war with Spain, Andrew was a lover at heart, and his heart belonged to a woman named Mary Seward, the Queen's handmaiden. One night, Mary begged Andrew not to go on his nightly horseback ride through the woods. Mary felt a terrible premonition of danger, but Andrew laughed off her intuition and rode off. During the ride, an old man in a tattered robe steps out of the shadows and beckons Andrew to stop. Despite the man's words, which tell only of a dreadful, evil truth about the universe, Andrew is drawn to the man as if in a trance. The man opens his mouth, revealing his fangs, and bites down on Andrew Bennett's neck, sucking the lifeblood out of him. At that moment, Andrew saw Mary's face, perhaps a psychic vision. He manages the strength to push the vampire away. Remembering the old legends, he picks up a sharp wooden tree branch and plunges it into the vampire's heart, killing him. But victory is too late. Andrew collapsed and died from blood loss. Three nights later, Andrew Bennett arose as a vampire. He returned to the castle, trying to hide his monstrous transformation, but Mary caught him. He confessed the whole tale to her, but to his surprise, she embraced his fate, asking him to turn her into a vampire so they could be together forever. But when Mary awakens as a vampire, her soul is as corrupt as the monster who turned Andrew. She wants to use their supernatural power to rule over humanity. Andrew is horrified by the change in his lover. Enraged, Mary swears she will make him pay for rejecting her, and then she changes into a bat and flies away. For nearly 400 years, Mary has traveled the world, leaving a trail of bloody corpses in her wake. During that time, she formed a vampire cartel called the Blood Red Moon that entrenched her vampire subjects in all spheres of life, from corporations to churches to governments, and in all that time, Andrew has pursued her, hoping to stop her one way or another. Which brings us back to the rooftop, where suddenly, Mary's vampire underlings surround Andrew Bennett and the others. Deborah and Dimitri defend themselves with holy relics and silver, which turn the vampire beasts away and even cause Andrew discomfort too. They spot Mary's car speeding away from the hotel. She had sent her agents upon them as a distraction. Andrew changes into a bat and flies down after her car. He changes back and rips the door open and drags the woman out onto the street, but he quickly realizes the woman is not Mary only a lowly vampire pawn made to look like Andrew's lover. The whole thing, summoning Andrew and his friends to the roof, was a scam to humiliate him, to show him how powerless he was to stop the blood-red moon. The first chapter of I, Vampire concludes with Andrew Bennett wondering if the centuries-old war with Mary is only just beginning. And joining me for this segment is my very lovely and very understanding wife, Angela Drew. Uh, 
If this part of the recording sounds a little bit different, it is because we are currently driving in the car at 10.30 at night um, in the rain because this is our life now. The only times we get to talk are when the baby is asleep, and tonight the only way the baby was going to go to sleep is if we just drove around the backwoods of Vermont for half an hour. So, Angie, how are you? I am great. (laughs) Thank you very much for doing this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. I mean, it's well, it could mi- literally be at midnight. It, like we really could have. We, we could have really gone. Could've. Yeah, we I mean, they wouldn't know. They but... wouldn't. We could. Be, this could be method. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we just read House of Mystery issue 290, the first story in that anthology book, which is the first chapter of the I Vampire story. Uh, this is the second time that we've read it. Uh, the first time we, re- <laughs> we read this issue, I can tell you the day. It was July 9th, 2017. And I know that day because I I had you read the story and you were like, yeah, okay, we can talk about that one. And we were going to record this segment the following day, July 10th, 2017. Except what happened that day that kind of threw off our recording I scene. ruined everything. You, not so much you as the uh, the baby in the back yeah, seat. I, I very selfishly went into labor. Yeah, God, suck. I just, I, I had to make it all about me. Right, so um, uh, 15 months later, uh, we finally got around to doing this. So, Angie, bare bones, what were your overall impressions of the first part of the I, Vampire saga? Well... Um, we see a lot of classic elements of um, the va- like the westernization of the the vampire myth. Um, it's really interesting because this this vampire story mm-hmm. has a lot of echoes um, from the um, the Bram Stoker Dracula, mm-hmm. um, which is this. Um, Cultured, intelligent, charismatic, um, I suppose handsome, though the art kind of goes back and forth with it. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I, I can see that the, the artist and the and the writer intended for him to be, I mean, he was a former courtier. Um, did I pronounce that right? I think. Whatever. Um, I mean, he, he worked and lived in the court of um, Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And um, his girlfriend was a handmaiden of the queen. I mean, this guy, and he was a war hero and a musician. Um, I mean, this guy had game, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he he was a desirable individual and had, like, really had life going for him. He's got kind of the elements of the the tragic hero in terms of, like, he had it all and and he lost it. and so he does show these elements that we we see reflected in in Stoker's Dracula, and and if if your audience is familiar with um, the vampire kind of archetype, we 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 see these different um, stages of the vampire um, through history. Mm-hmm. Um, Stoker's Dracula is kind of the um, the popular vampire of the last couple hundred years. Um, and and vampires that we see today have kind of evolved from him. Um, but Stoker borrowed um, borrowed from myths and legends and um, historical accounts 
from Eastern Europe. Yeah. And um, he's looking at the um, the revenant type of vampire of Eastern Europe and in Greece. Um, this idea of a corpse that has come back from the dead, mm-hmm. and he combined it with these these cultural hero stories out of um, Transylvania. Mm-hmm. Really, he stole the t- the name from Vlad Dracul, um, who was like in in Western culture today. He kind of gets this bad rap of like Vlad Tepes was. Um, called Vlad the Impaler by his enemies and actually um, probably his um, his fans might have called him that too, which I'll talk about in a second. But he was known for um, his brutal tactics in war where he would capture enemies and impale them alive on these giant wooden stakes and he would dine um, out in the courtyard with the bodies of his enemies hanging and bleeding around him. And of course, um, the legends then grew that he drank their blood. And, um, and from that, we start getting these, these vampire stories. Um, it turns out that Vladrakul's people were being subjugated and tortured and murdered. And his tactics actually drove the enemy out. And so he was seen as a national hero. And he still is. Like, there are, there are statues of him in squares um, in that part of the world. But from the, the British um, Western viewpoint, um, you know, he, he turned into kind of the perfect villain, the perfect monster. Um, but we, we see, like, I, I see some really cool elements of, like, the original Eastern European, like, corpse vampire in the story as well. So, like, we, we have Andrew and Mary who have this more modernized vampire kind of, um, archetype being conveyed. Um, but... Mary's minions, which seem a little reminiscent of um, Dracula's minions mm-hmm. in Stoker's Dracula, though um, he does have some servants who are also beautiful and desirable. But Mary has these undead corpses, and really, the um, the vampire that originally turned Andrew mm-hmm. is this kind of horrific corpse mm-hmm. of a vampire. And, you know, what we see in the original Eastern European vampires were, were these these undead corpses that, like, couldn't rest, were kind of um, cursed. And, and really, these stories came out of really interesting cultural realities. A lot of kind of suspected vampires were victims of diseases that were highly contagious. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in fact, there was a... Um, an outbreak of vampirism in Vermont um, in like the 1700s, which was really tuberculosis. Yeah. Um, and, and so what we would see is like we, you know, we have people who don't understand modern medicine and they don't understand how um, diseases can be passed from person to person. And so what they see is here is a family and the mother just passed away. And then we see her children pass away and her husband pass away and we don't understand why they're all dying they're kind of dying mysteriously it must be that she came back from the dead and took them 
That is the um, logical answer. That, <laughs> that's the first thing that I would lead to. Right. Um, so, and and really, there like this might not have grown into the superstition that it did, except that the town people, like, what do human beings do when they're afraid? They blame something. They blame something, right? They scapegoat. And what do humans do when they blame something? Uh, they villainize, they demonize something, they... Yeah, and they kill it, yeah. right? Like, humans need to kill things, right, to feel better. Um, and when they kill something, they, they think they've accomplished something. So, you know, what, what villagers would do is, like, they would be a suspected vampire, and they would dig up that individual's grave... And what they would find is, and again, we see these um, this evidence of individuals who didn't understand, um, you know, pathology and decomposition of bodies. Um, when um, here, here's a little disclaimer, um, Brian's audience, this is going to get gross, <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy. So, when a body decomposes, um, especially one that hasn't been treated. Right? It hasn't been embalmed, it hasn't um, been treated with formaldehyde or any of those things. Um, it, it begins to pull apart in interesting ways. Like, do you know the, the, the kind of idea that when someone dies, their hair and nails continue to grow? Mm-hmm. That is totally false. What is the truth of the... <laughs> <laughs> well, because, like, does that make any sense, that hair and nails would continue to grow after you're dead? I... I don't know. So what happens is the um, the skin, the dermis, right, mm-hmm. um, starts to pull away from the epidermis. So we start to see, like, sliding. One of the results of that is that it slides away from the nails and, and um, exposes more of the nail bed, which makes it appear that the nails are growing. It does the same thing with the hair. Right, like the hair follicles get more exposed, so it appears that the hair is growing. It happens also with the gums; they they start to pull back, and it appears that the teeth are growing. Um, is this the skin slippage? Yeah. So what I always thought skin slippage was something else. No, uh, well, maybe it <laughs> is. Um, but this skin slippage, in terms of decomposition, is this uh, like the slipping of the dermis and the epidermis, which starts exposing hair follicles, nail beds, um, and, um, we also start to see, like, because there's gases that are, uh, building up inside the, the body's cavity, and there's, remember, it hasn't, the body hasn't been embalmed, so there's, the blood has been left in it, so we've got blood that actually, like, it congeals, but then it liquefies again during this process of decomposition, and the gases might push blood out of um, any kind of orifice, mm-hmm. um, including the mouth. Um, so all of this kind of makes the corpse look fresh, right? Um, it makes it look like the hair and nails and teeth are growing. It makes it look like um, there's fresh blood, as if this this person had just killed someone. But here's the real kicker: is that they want to kill it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what have, what do our traditional vampire myths say, like, you have to do to kill a vampire? Uh, stick through the heart, beheading, fire, or immolation. Yes, and sometimes if they're trying to be really thorough, they do it all. Yeah. Um, 
So specifically, the the wooden stake to the heart, mm-hmm. right? What happens when, like, <laughs> when you have like a balloon that's partially filled with air, right? It's not like blown up all the way, but it's partially filled with air, so it's a little soft, and you pop it, but it doesn't like explode pop. It just kind of has a hole in it. When you pull that like needle or whatever you use to pop that hole, what does the balloon do? It makes a sort of easy farting noise. But yeah, like that, it kind yeah. of goes. Ee! Yeah, the gas and the gas escaping. Yeah. So guess what? <laughs> the human body does the same the thing. The human body does the same thing. So like you'd have all these town people like who are convinced. Like in human beings, when they're convinced of something, they find evidence that backs it up. I mean, hello, current. Um, climate in the world like when we believe something we um, it's a, a confirmation bias yeah right we're, we're looking for any evidence that will back up what we already believe and so if all these townspeople are terrified and they believe that this is like the culprit um, this is a monster that's coming back and killing people and they sharpen their wooden stake and they drive it into the chest cavity of this bloated corpse they hear it scream. It's the gases escaping from the chest cavity, but they hear the corpse scream, and it is confirmed for them that they have indeed just killed a vampire. And that's probably when they behead it and burn it. <laughs> I mean, damn, right? That's terrifying. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think my question was, what do you think about the story of vampire? Um... I thought you said you wanted me to talk about, like... I did, but, like, sort of, like, kind of in general. And and I guess, yeah, well... Well, I did. I told you, like, that I think that, um, I mean, so there you, was you another... Will, let me... Because you, you mentioned the, the Stoker influences. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of wondering if the writer, Jam DeMatteis, was at all possibly influenced by... Uh, like Anne Rice's interview with a vampire would have come out about five years before this. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm just wondering if the fact that it's a first person narration, like the eye vampire thing of of putting the character of Andrew Bennett sort of front and center as our kind of narrator and hero. Yes. If any of that might have been because with Dracula he was not the narrator, he was not the hero. Right. In fact, Giving... Dracula was hardly ever on screens like and slash yeah. on page uh, in the original Stoker novel. Giving the vampire voice was definitely something that um, Anne Rice made very popular, mm-hmm. right? Before Anne Rice, it really was, like, the vampire was the antagonist. Mm-hmm. She makes the, the vampire the protagonist. So it's it's interesting that you bring that up, that, that they're close, like, of the time mm-hmm. frame in terms of the release of that. Because I, I bet, yeah. And, and thinking about that, um, you definitely see echoes of the kind of like Louis Lestat relationship of like these two vampires that had a good relationship but then broke and, and right. one of them is antagonizing the other. And certainly Andrew siring Mary, his his beloved, thinking that they're going to have this life because she begs yes. him to and then being kind of repulsed by the change in her yes. and not liking like the desire. And and my my like kind of quick thoughts like I didn't like the story as much on the second reread, and part of it was was I don't really care about the supporting characters of Mishkin and Deborah. Mm-hmm. Now it's 
the first chapter, we don't really get much information on them. We know that Mishkin doesn't like Andrew Bennett for some reason. Well, he doesn't like him that he's a vampire, but we're gonna... Deborah is just a woman kind of swooning over Andrew. She has no real agency. I don't know what fate befalls either of them as the, as the story goes on. I don't know if they live, if they die, if they become more sympathetic or something. I didn't really care about them. The other thing, and this is just kind of being unable to do anything but compare this story to others, is the whole idea of kind of the vampire slayer. I think between Blade and Buffy, I've kind of seen that done as as well as it can be, and everything else it sort of feels like a pale imitation. The part of the story that I did kind of find interesting was actually Mary and what she was doing. Mm-hmm. The idea that she for centuries now has formed this kind of cabal kind of blood red moon Mm -hmm. and this secret society of vampires that have infiltrated governments churches um like 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 corporations Mm -hmm. the idea that all of those would kind of be infiltrated by these vampires i found that more interesting and i kind of wanted to see a lot more of that and maybe we will um if ever we continue to read the eye vampire saga um and i do kind of like andrew's personal revenge quest um so I guess I like more of the ideas of kind of what they were talking about with this one but I didn't really care for the story as presented in this initial chapter um because I didn't care about like the sport of the flashbacks to Andrew's origin I liked um I, I thought that was that was pretty cool like talking about how he went on this nightly ride he was attacked by this sort of more monstrous I like the fact that even as he was being attacked he had the strength to kill the vampire too they kind of killed each other mm-hmm. and that shows that there is something more heroic more special about Andrew as a person the fact that he's able to kill this vampire as it's killing him um, kind of makes him different makes him special um, gives him that heroic heroic quality that you would need in order for him to be a tragic hero he has to first be a hero yeah so um, yeah, I see what you're saying. I think that the human characters are, are kind of needed in order to give, um, relevancy to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we've got immortal characters fighting each other, um, I, I meant to say immortal, when we have immortal characters, I mean, I guess they might be immoral, um, <laughs> I don't know their life, um, but when we have these characters that can't die fighting each other, we have to be reminded, like, that we're, like, we're living underneath them, right? Like, that's, a, like, that's how we can relate, because we say, like, you know, um, what's the impact, um, you know, on the world with, like, Mary Luce and these, like, monsters going around? Well, it's like, oh, you've got to remember, we've got these frail mortals who, um, you know have to survive these monsters and I think showing Andrew working with humans shows that he's clung onto his um his mortal life Mm -hmm. in these like last 400 years um whereas Mary has completely like shed it Mm -hmm. she she is surrounded by other undead um and and I think it like they serve as a foil for Andrew to like really show us that he he's still human even though he's in a vampire body and I, and I think that's significant and I'm sure that they serve a really good like I mean they add tension for him mm-hmm. right like I'm sure later on in the series 
he's going to have to save them. Right. He might need to sacrifice for them. He might need to choose between. And it's interesting. It's very interesting that he's still in love with Mary, but he also loathes her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, having to choose between these, like, these individuals he doesn't really care about because he actually does kind of talk down about these two. Like, he kind of talks about her with scorn. He's like, yeah, she she loves me, but whatever. I don't, like, I don't love her. I love Mary, even though I hate her. And then he doesn't like um, Mishka. Is that Mishka. Right? Mishkin. He doesn't like Mishkin at all. And it's so funny when he, like, makes the comment about how young Mishkin is. He's like, he's only 74. <laughs> like, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> But, like, the scorn that he has for them, and yet he's still working with them, and he's still working to protect them, and working against his, like, his greatest love, mm-hmm. um, I think says a lot about his character. Yeah. It does make him more interesting. Yeah. And that, that part of it, the the conflict in his relationship with Mary, I do find compelling, and I do want to, especially if he's, he, I mean, he is emotionally compromised by that, and, you know, if he gets to the point where he able to kill her can he go through with it i don't know see um very briefly uh, the art by tom sutton he he did a lot of he never really did much like in terms of like major superhero stuff he mostly worked in horror comics and westerns and that type of like genre fiction within comics i think he's more suited for that maybe i think maybe part of the weakness one of the things that i didn't like about the art in this we were reading the digital version and the coloring seemed a little bit too bright, but also vibrant. And I, I think for a story like this, you need a little bit more atmospheric coloring. And I just wasn't getting that. Um, stepping away from the, the story itself and, and kind of switching gears back, you've obviously displayed that you've got a kind of expertise for this. Um, when and where did your interest and your love of like vampires and in literature and fiction come from? Um, so in high school, I went to a high school that requires in the junior year an area of inquiry paper where you do an extensive research paper um, on like some sort of issue or topic. Um, and then in the senior year, you do a capstone. And most people's AOIs and capstones don't connect, but um, I actually ended up connecting mine. But essentially, I did, in high school, a couple years of research looking into how um, the vampire in folklore and literature of any given culture um, reflects the taboos of that culture. So, um, for instance, we see, or, or the values of that culture, or like the cultural identity. Um, so, for instance, in the Eastern European um, vampires, we, we see kind of ignorance of medicine, um, superstition, um, you know, other kind of anxieties about like xenophobia and such, um, like that. And we, and we actually, we see the xenophobia continue to grow with Stoker's Dracula. And so what we see is, um, in the Victorian vampire, um, we have, you know, these suave, charismatic men like Dracula, creeping through women's windows, biting them on the neck, um, which is clearly an anxiety and taboo about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Um, and then when we get to the the American vampire, which was which was a really compelling thing to look at because then it's a little bit harder to analyze that because like you know I'm living in it. But I was um, looking at specifically Anne Rice. I was definitely seeing this weird anxiety slash love affair with um, monarchy. Mm. Um, so we we see like the American fascination with. With, with princes mm-hmm. and um, and kings and queens and, and these these sexy higher beings so like you know the American ideal is to reject monarchy and to, to reject this um, this hereditary power um, whereas like I mean Lestat is called the brat prince in in this series like he his name means the state in French (laughs) um you know and then we as the series grows we we see like we have like the queen of the damned and other like very aristocratic figures so you know the American rejection of the aristocracy starts to be embraced in this weird inverse dark universe um so that was one of the the themes that I was looking at and I would pick up with that and with others, like movies like The Lost Boys and other like vampire fiction from the 80s and 90s, sort of the the vampire as other or sort of representing a, a counterculture, um, certainly issues of homosexuality yeah. and, and a culture kind of find, like coming to grips with that. Mm-hmm. Um, even something like the, the Twilight books, like that whole sort of modern look at vampires seems to be a kind of commentary on a generation that is just obsessed with self. Yeah, and, ab- and actually, I think um, if I, you know, if I revisited this topic now, um, there would definitely be this edge of, like, consumption mm-hmm. and, and looking at the vampire as, like, the, the consuming monster and then looking at our society as a society of consumption and gluttony. Um, yeah, and, and I think you're right, like that, that almost narcissistic um, reflection of, and the shallow beauty um, is certainly, um, is certainly kind of a new trend to the American vampire. Do you have a particular favorite vampire story, whether it's a, a book, short story, movie? You know, I have been very partial to um, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Mm. Um, like, they, they did make the Will Smith um, mm-hmm. movie a few years ago, and it's, it's roughly based on that. But um, it's a novella from the 70s. And it's just so gritty and raw and really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar to the, the, the Will Smith movie, um, the, this man is the last surviving human. Well, I will, I, I will make mention of my, my personal bias that I think the I Am Legend movie with Will Smith is very good. It's very entertaining. I think it's a zombie movie, not a vampire movie. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I would say, have you, have you seen both cuts, right? 
Yes. And and hopefully, like, maybe your audience is unaware that there are two cuts of the movie. Um, there's the theatrical cut, um, which ends with um, a lot of death and destruction. Um, and then there's a director's cut, which they they completely changed the end of the film because of um, audience screening feedback. Right. And, and I find it really interesting because I really like the director's cut much better than the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. And I think had they gone with the director's cut, it would be more like more of a vampire story. Yes. Um, I, I think the, the physiological um, attributes of these monsters is much more zombie-like, but something that the theatrical cut does is make them very animal-like. Right. And something that the um, the director's cut does is, is, is it shows that they have feelings and attachments um, and that they're, they're kind of a, a culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that makes them more vampire-like. So how does the Matheson book differ from... So the Matheson book is just completely different. Like, um, he, there, and I have, like, disclaimer, I haven't actually read it for years and years. (laughs) Um, but he, I just, I vividly remember, like, these moments where, like, for instance, every night, I think it kind of opens with, he's just like, every night this happens. And so he boards up his house every night. And every night, all the vampires come and, like, stand on his front yard and berate him. Mm-hmm. And, like, yell at him and, like, try to get into his house and, like, call him names. Um, but, like, they can talk to him. They mm-hmm. can, like, reason with him and yell at him. And, you know, and every night he sits it out. But, it, it like, it sounds horrifying. And, like, you know, and then every day he goes out, kind of like Will Smith does, goes out, gets supplies, like, you know fixes fixes the outside of his build like his house where like the vampires like you know <laughs> rip things apart and they they like they're always sabotaging stuff and you know making a mess and they're just like generally being jerks to him um they're basically like come on man we're all vampires you might as well become a vampire too and he's like screw you i'm not a va- being a vampire um and it's just like you know horrifying like like he knows that they're gonna torture him and kill him slowly and and it's pretty awful and um and and I don't remember how it happens but he eventually gets captured and and like they do torture him and um but I think if I remember right one of them slips him like a pill to um to take his own life and and like that's kind of how he ends it kind of like so it's it's a little similar in terms of like will smith in the the theatrical cut where he um you know he chooses to to um destroy himself with the vampires um but the matheson the matheson story kind of just ends with this bleakness like this very nihilistic like hopeless like yeah the vampires won the only the only living human is now dead and, and like and that's it like there's no there's no hope right there's no there's no like community in Vermont um, it, it's just it's just done and and I feel like Matheson taps into um, this dread that humans have is that like 
when it's all over, nothing we have matters and nothing we are matters. Hmm. And our legacy is gone, right? Um, he does end the, this I like this idea that you know he he feels like he's legend because he he is the last human standing. Um, but then that that legend dies, and then he he you know passes into legend. I need, right. to, I need to reread that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good place to end. All right. Well, on that note, um, any final thoughts before we go? Um, sorry, I didn't talk more about the story. I honestly, I, I didn't really have much notes. It's the first chapter of a long story, and uh, there there were things about the story that I like, but ultimately, there were ideas in it that intrigued me, but. I will say that you gave me another vampire story mm-hmm. um, originally, mm-hmm. and I didn't like that one at all. So that's the Castaways that I just reviewed with Max earlier in this episode, and I like that one a lot. Okay. So, so I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that one, like, reminded me of, like, a more serious Rocky horror picture show. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I guess, like, the thing was, like, when you asked me to review one of these... Um, because of my background in vampire literature and folklore, I was looking for echoes of vampire literature and folklore. Mm. And I don't see any of those echoes in The Castaways. Okay. Um, I mean, it, it's a cool monster story, but I don't know that I would have had a lot to say about it. Okay. Whereas, like, That's this fair. story, I'm seeing those echoes. That's fair. Well, thankfully, Max had something to say about it, so that was good. All right, well... Um, we are pulling into the driveway, and little Mana seem, seems to be asleep in the back. So, uh, Angela, thank you very much for being my guest on Midnight Podcasting Hour. And listeners, we're going to take a short promo break here, and then I will be back with your listener feedback from who the last episode, which came out back in March, I think. 2003. <laughs> Come back. Back through the Fire and Water Network. Come. Back with the Supermates. I said, come back. Back to... The House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and... I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Haynes. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Jean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Frankenstein. Back. Back. Yes, 
monster. He thinks I'm Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> The last episode, I think, was the Bernie Wrightson tribute episode with guests Siskoid, Sean Ross, and Jimmy McGlinchey. Got a lot of great feedback on the Fire and Water website from that episode. The first comment came from former guest of the show Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Brilliant episode with excellent guests. I hope PJ Frightful enjoyed the taste of fresh meat. Nice. Siskoid, as always, is great value. Sean was a delight, and Jimmy a total treat. I've wanted to hear his Irish tones on one of the shows for a while. Thanks for all the great insights, chaps. Uh, Martin left a few other comments about the specific segments, and then at the end he said, As regards Egmont's UK Shockwave mag, it just didn't survive on the UK newsstands. Maybe we got it wrong, but I remember that getting display space display space from the main distributor was a bugger without handing over huge wads of cash we did another spooky not ooky book zones that flopped too um paul hicks from the dc ocd podcast and waiting for doom said brilliant episode loved hearing sean and jimmy for the first time what a classy tribute to a great artist thank you thank you um I am assuming that Paul meant for the first time part in regards to Jimmy only, not Sean too, but either way, whatever. Uh, Rob Kelly from This Here Fire and Water Network said, This was a great show and I loved hearing the new voices, to this show at least. Sean's Friday the 13th story was simply amazing, and Jimmy McGlinchey sounded exactly like I hoped someone with that name would. Uh, since that episode came out, Rob has actually had Sean on his Film and Water podcast to discuss Friday the 13th, uh, and he told that story in even greater detail and context. Definitely check that out if you haven't already heard it. Uh, Rob also added, Swamp Thing number three was, strangely enough, the subject of an episode of that Nickelodeon show v- Video Comics, which was aimed at very young kids. Why this gruesome, blood-soaked tale was deemed appropriate for the show, I know not, but it may have been the first time I ever saw the original Swamp Thing comic, and I still remember how beautiful Wrightson's work looked up close on my TV. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey actually came on and mentioned some flattering things about the other segments on the episode that he wasn't in. Uh, Then he added, It was a great honor to be involved in the show, and Ryan did a great job leading me through my first participation in a podcast. To be involved in a show commemorating a legend like Bernie Wrightson was a treat, and hopefully we will hear more about Wrightson's work in future podcasts. And uh, if the Nightcast and the JLI podcast want to do specials commemorating Wrightson's work in the cult and the weird, respectively, I would love to see them do it, if possible. Uh, I can't speak for the JLI podcast, but Nightcast will definitely cover Batman the Cults in however many years it takes us to get to that point at our current output. Uh, Speaking of which, my Nightcast co-host Chris Franklin, who also hosts JLUcast and Supermates, which includes the House of Frankenstein Halloween episodes that you guys have got to be listening to. Uh, Chris said, You and Siskoid brought up the Patchwork Man solo story in House of Secrets. I remember reading a back-issue article on that, I believe by DC historian John Wells. The story ends in a cliffhanger, and the ending was never published in the U.S. House of Secrets was cancelled for a few months, and when it came back, DC didn't print the second part, perhaps because the story involved an abortion clinic. It was printed by one of DC's European publishers in the 80s, I believe. Hmm. 
Okay, that's cool. I, I, I know nothing about that, but that sounds interesting. Uh, Ward Hill Terry says, I recall when I got the first reprint of the Ween Rights and Swamp Thing issues, which was in DC Special Series number 2, 14, 17, and 20. I also have those four issues. In fact, it's the first place that I ever read this saga. Um, I actually have one of them signed by Bernie Wrightson, too. Uh, anyway, Ward says, The introduction stated that Len and Bernie were deliberately paying homage to the classic Universal Monsters. Minor details like the feasibility of a small plane's ability to cross the Atlantic, the motivations and jurisdiction of an FBI man, the physics of a castle built on top of an abyss in a mountain, were probably not given much consideration. Bernie liked to draw creepy castles and unmen, so let's find an excuse for him to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I would do in their situation, too. Uh, as the podcast is not a visual medium, most of the focus on a podcast like this is on the plot of the stories. However, you all did a great job discussing and analyzing Wrightson's art. I encourage you to go further, Ryan. Please don't hesitate as you continue to look at these horror stories to talk about perspective in the panels, the weight of lines, the use of shadows, the pacing of the images... Wrightson was certainly a master of these things, but even lesser acclaimed artists brought a lot of skill to these tales. I will certainly try to do that as often as possible, Ward, um, because I don't have an art background. Um, I've always liked and appreciated art, but in a lot of ways I don't have the vocabulary to describe some of these things, so usually when I'm going into reviewing a comic, I do focus on story and script mostly, and I just say whether or not I like the art or if certain things bother me, but I, for certainly for for a horror-themed comic where a lot of it is in the visual presentation, I, I will definitely try as hard as I can um, to, to express that and convey some of those ideas. Will I succeed? Who knows? Uh, Edo Bosnar said, A very fine tribute to Mr. Wrightson, but especially Sean's story about using Wrightson's art as a visual aid during his English classes. Man, why didn't I have teachers like that when I was in high school? Uh, I don't know, Edo. I mean, most of my high school teachers were super sexy, but none of them were cool like Sean. So, anyway... Uh, Brian Linton said, I've known of Bernie Wrightson by reputation for a long time, but never really read any of his books growing up. So I really enjoyed this retrospective episode and the new voices, along with the people behind them, that you brought on the show for this tribute. I particularly liked the artwork for The Secret of the Egyptian Cat. I agree that the transformation sequences are incredibly dynamic, and I love the expressive nature of the priestess in her cat form. My family has an old cat, and my wife and daughter swear that he has different expressions, but I can't differentiate between them. If our cat was as expressive as Wrightson's, then I would totally agree with them. <laughs> uh, next, the irredeemable shag from this very network said, A fantastic tribute and a fantastic episode. Some of my favorite podcasters. And Ryan. Uh, yeah. Shag says, loved Sean's story about the student's tattoo. Wow, to make that kind of impression on a teenager is really hard. I could use some pointers with my own teenager. And an excellent debut for Jimmy McGlinchey. True story, I booked Jimmy for the JLI podcast many, many months ago. However, his issue is still far in the future for coverage. So Ryan swooped in and snatched Jimmy up, giving him his podcasting debut. So glad he did. Great job, Jimmy. I second those thoughts. Uh, hope we hear more Midnight Sooner versus Later. Cough, cough. Spectre, cough, cough. 
think Shag is trying to give me a hint, or he has a really weird form of bronchitis. Uh, either way, if he behaves himself, Shag will be a guest on the next episode, wherein we will return to DC's Spirit of Vengeance with the Wrath of the Spectre. And the final website comment came from Al Sedano from Resurrections, the Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Al said, I have never really read any of DC's horror anthology titles. With that said, Ryan, you and your guests always do an amazing job creating such a word picture that while I do want to go out and find these issues, I don't need to in order to follow along with the story. Also, I'm not sure what I enjoyed more from Sean, his first experience with a horror movie, or hearing how he taught Frankenstein. Now that's a class I would have paid attention to. Uh, Al then asked if Siskoid would be the permanent replacement for Ben Avery on the Swamp Thing issues going forward. As cool and as wonderful as that would be if Siskoid was uh, banked forever on the show, uh, that is not the plan going forward. Instead, I'm going to cycle through a couple of people on Swamp Thing. Don't worry, they're all really, really good people uh, for those upcoming episodes. However, Siskoid will return whenever I get to issue 9, because it connects to an episode of First Strike, the Invasion podcast that Siskoid just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And by the way, Huge congratulations to him and his co-host Bast on that endeavor. Next on their agenda, they're going to be tackling the zero-hour event. And let me tell you, I have some thoughts on it. Oh. All right. Well, I guess I can't tell you. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for writing in. And until next time... Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight the Podcasting Hour is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.